Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to the Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative of Perinatal Quality Care. I'm Mary Catherine Burke, the Patient and Family Partner Chair for TIPQC, as well as a mom and a local hospital family partner. Today, we have the honor of talking to the National Program Manager for Mama's Voices, Becca Bischoff. Mama's, which is Maternal Mortality and Morbidity Advocates Voices, is the first ever Maternal Health Patient Advocacy Coalition established in 2018 to amplify the voices of those who have experienced pregnancy and childbirth complications or loss especially those who have been historically marginalized, ensuring that they are equipped and activated as partners with providers and researchers to improve maternal health outcomes. In Becca's role at Mama's Voices, she works with patient family partners with lived experience, along with healthcare providers, hospitals, medical facilities, and other quality improvement partners to provide training on lived experience integration into quality improvement. She enjoys using her years of professional experience and education to implement change through the Mama's Voices Lived Experience Integration Framework. She interacts with our patient family partners to help prepare them for engagement opportunities. Becca hails from Kentucky, but more importantly, she is a mom of four precious kiddos. Welcome to our show today, Becca. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's start off by you telling us about your journey through pregnancy and your own birth complications. Yeah. Wow. It's been such a journey. So when I got married, I wanted to have a lot of kids and I thought it would be really easy and it wasn't. I ended up finding out I had stage four endometriosis and PCOS. And so I had a lot of different laparoscopies and surgeries before I could get pregnant But when I finally was able to conceive my first child in 2010, I had preeclampsia with her and I was put on bed rest about 33 weeks. I'd had some high blood pressure readings, but I don't remember anything alarming during that time. It was just kind of like, you have preeclampsia, you go to bed, no big deal. My water broke about four weeks later and my delivery was pretty smooth and flawless. I even remember thinking everybody gets preeclampsia, like it's no big deal. I was very uneducated about it. In hindsight, I can see that now. I had another laparoscopy and was told I would likely not conceive again, but thankfully I was able to in 2012. I was pregnant with my now 11-year-old son, Henry. But I remember pretty quickly that this pregnancy felt very different from my first pregnancy. And around like the four to five month mark, 
I started noticing that I was just so tired, just this like very remarkable fatigue that I could not put my finger on where it was coming from. I was also noticing that I was gaining a lot of weight, but I wasn't eating. And so I mentioned this, one of my checkups, and I was told, oh, you have a two-year-old. Of course, you're going to be tired. They told me as far as my weight gain, they said, oh, you go to the pool with your kids. It's just water weight. And so as the weeks continued and my fatigue got so much worse, I was having headaches and I was having this constant sickness. I had heartburn. It was so terrible. I could not even swallow water without getting it. Hmm. I had this upper right quadrant pain. I mean, so I had all these symptoms and I continued to mention them to my doctor. I was just continuously told like, this is normal, you know, take Tums for your heartburn. You're supposed to be tired. You can take Tylenol for your headaches about my upper right quadrant pain. Of course, I didn't know that's what you called it back then, right? But I just was pointing to that location and I'll never forget the nurse saying, oh, that's just Henry swinging like a monkey on your rib cage. In hindsight now, I know that that was a really bad thing. That's where my liver was and it was very much indicative of HELP syndrome. At the time though, I didn't know that. I also remember... And I know there's so much to my story, just like as I go back and think about all the signs that were so missed during all of this. I remember one night seeing stars and sharing with my husband. We both just kind of thought everything has been deemed as normal, right? Like up until this point. And so I just really started to second guess myself and to think like, Maybe I'm like imagining this. Maybe it's really not that bad. Like maybe I'm just being a big baby. (laughs) And I remember a nurse saying, you worried a lot with your first. Don't worry this time. And that comment really haunts me today um, because knowing how sick I actually really was um, at that time. My provider was in practice by herself. So my story's really unique in that you would only see her. And so she was the only one in that practice. And so you could wait hours and hours to see her. And I had a two-year-old, so I tried to get in and out, right? So I would try to see different PAs that were filling in. And so unbeknownst to me, the final OB appointment that I had ended up being the final appointment at 35 weeks. I really just wanted to see my OB because I knew something just wasn't right. And I just really wanted to see her. So I started that appointment the way I had started all of the other ones, right? Like saying, I don't feel well, giving all my symptoms. And this nurse said, well, you look cute. As if, you know, wearing pink lipstick in a cute outfit meant I couldn't be very sick. And so my OB noticed that my elevated, my pressures were elevated, 135 over 90. And for everybody who's listening that right now, they might be thinking, okay, that's not catastrophic. But for me, that's really high because my normal was always 110 over 70. So she had me lay on my left side. And when it was checked again, she told me it wasn't better. So I needed to go on bed rest and to call her if anything changed. I went home. I was sick all night long, aching, headaches, all these things. And I remember so badly wanting to call the after hours number, but I truly believed that they had written that I was the crazy anxious mom in my chart. And I was afraid to call and to say anything. Because again, everything up to this point, I had been told is normal. 
So I ended up waiting until the office opened. I later found out that my labs had been placed on a cart. You know, this was before the day of electronic records when you, you know, you can get them sent to you. But I remember the receptionist came back and she said, baby, it's not good. You need to get here now. And I knew I was the problem. I just didn't know what that meant. The high-risk OB ER doctor met us in the lobby when we got there. And I knew that that was not good. It was immediately started on the magnesium sulfate and steroids. Um, They wanted to check my platelets again, as there had been a significant drop since the day before. They had the lights off. They told me to lay on my left side. But the crazy part in all of this is that I didn't understand what was wrong. There was no communication. There was no explanation of what was happening around me. It was just they were working very quickly and not communicating. Even when my parents came later to the hospital, they were noticing the hospital staff talking to each other. And I don't know what was asked, but I said something and the nurse said, you sure do ask a lot of questions. My mom was told, she's just the really sick girl, mom and dad. We don't need anyone else coming. But again, there was no communication, no information about what was happening. So normally in these situations, you would immediately do a C-section. But my OB knew that I had delivered my daughter really quickly two years prior. And she felt that it would really be easy to see if it would be easier on my body to see if I could quickly have him. When she went to break my water, I of course was in that dark room laying flat, but my mother and my doctor kept their faces calm, even though there was no water when they broke it, it was all blood. And so after it was time to deliver Henry, I remember thinking after pushing twice and he was there, okay, it's over. Like I just thought, I'm going to deliver this baby. Everything's fine. But I got sicker in the days to come. I couldn't be released to the postpartum floor until my platelets had increased. My pressures were still so high. They were working on fluctuating different medications. I remember my dad driving in to visit me and he was told I couldn't have any visitors. So we had to leave. And there was just this overwhelming sadness that. I had wondering what was happening to me. Again, there was no communication. When I was finally released to the postpartum floor, a nurse said, oh, we heard about you. You were the really sick girl. But again, I didn't know. I just, like I knew I'd had preeclampsia and help syndrome that was like sudden passing at some point, but I didn't know what that meant. So my family's Googling it. I'm trying to Google it. There just, there wasn't really any information given to me by my a medical medical provider team. So days later, when it was time to be discharged, I still wasn't feeling well and I asked them to take my blood pressure. So they were about to discharge me without checking my pressures. It was elevated. They called my doctor who then doubled my medication. And so for the next several weeks, that was my life is that I was sent home on bed rest. I had to call each day to give them my readings. I had family members that moved in to live with me to care for me and my babies. And even at home, I still have a notepad by my bed. I can't throw it away. It like makes me want to cry when I say it out loud, but I can't throw it away because I wrote down my pressure readings. And this is someone who's on a lot of medication. I'm weeks out from delivering. And my pressure was 164 over 101. 
And I mean, that for someone who has such a small baseline, or such a low baseline and had been on all that medication, it was just knowing what I know now. I know I was really, really sick. I've been on blood pressure medicine ever since. It was the most terrifying experience I've ever been through. But the saddest part for me is that I thought I was the only person like that had ever been through this. And I soon learned that I was very wrong, that this happens to a lot of women, unfortunately. And I'm just so forever grateful that my life was spared and that I'm here to tell this story and to get to be a part of improving outcomes for the future. Wow. I mean, what a story and what a journey. I mean, it's just just thinking about it, because even in my experience, communication when with my children in the NICU was was very hard. Getting information from the physicians, it's like, and the, the lack of communication even during my delivery. So that is just so hard because that was one of your biggest things and your life. Such a scary, traumatic time. Yeah, it was very scary, you know, and it's weird because like in the moment, you don't really know. Right. And I understand from a per- their perspective, right? Like they wanted they wanted to keep me calm. And I see that, right? Like they needed to keep my pressures stable. But I feel the biggest like hurt, I guess, for my parents and my husband who had no idea what was happening. So I was medicated. They're trying to keep me calm, but they had to walk through all of that. And so in hindsight, I see how terrifying that must have been for my family as well. Oh, I'm sure. So did... With your other two, did you have complications like this? So my other two actually have, um, I have gotten through adoption because I ended ended up having a full hysterectomy when I was about 29 years old. And so that was part of my story. So thankfully, I didn't have to go through that again. I was told that I should never, ever have another baby again, just since I had had preeclampsia once and then I had it again with my subsequent pregnancy that it would not be in the best interest. And one of the reasons I really wanted to get involved in this work is because unfortunately, pregnancy and that whole experience for me is completely tainted, mm-hmm. that it represents fear. So I see a pregnant woman and it's not like, oh, that's so cute. I, I like automatically think fear. And I knew that I wanted to dedicate my life to this work because I don't want my children, their spouses or the girls that I have to carry babies. And it'd be so scary. I want it to be better so that when it's their turn, that they don't have to go through all of this. And so that's really how I wanted to get involved in this work is that I just didn't want anybody else to have to go through this. Yeah, that's so great because I'm with you. It is. It is so scary. You and I, both of our experiences, you have a plan, you think everything's going to go okay, but it's just when you just never know what God has in hands. I mean, right. you just never know. It just, it all just blows up and it is so scary for women. Yeah. But, it shouldn't be that way. It no. just, it shouldn't be that way. I know my mom has said the same thing that I just shared. Like whenever she sees a pregnant woman, she's like, oh, just so, it's so scary, you know, and you don't want, it's hard because you don't want, to terrify women, right? It is supposed to be a happy thing. It's supposed to be a natural thing that happens, right? Like we have babies, it's supposed to be normal and natural, but it's not. And so there's that fine line in walking, like you want 
education and awareness for pregnant mothers to know, but you also don't want to terrify them so that they feel like every single thing that they have must mean that they're going to die from it, right? So it's a really, it's a really fine line to walk. It is. And I think that's why the work you're doing is so great because having providers partner with family and patients is so crucial because I think they can figure out how you gently can share some things. Like these are the things to look out for. These are things that could happen. But in your situation, what do you think that you would have providers like? What do you think could have helped or what have you shared with provider groups that would have helped in your situation? Yeah. So I think about two different pieces of my story that if I could change, you know, I don't like to live my life with regrets, right? Like I think everything happens for a reason. But when we work with hospital teams, we want to help them. We want to be solution focused, right? Like what could go differently for the next family? So for, for me, I like to share that knowing who your patient is and what their baseline is. So for me on the outside, I looked fine. My numbers were quote fine, but I was painting a very different picture from what the numbers were showing. So I was Mm -hmm. communicating how I was feeling. I was very actively vocalizing. I'm extremely tired. I can't get off the couch. This is not like me. I can't take a walk around my neighborhood. I can't sleep. I can't eat. Those are warning signs that should be going off for my care team. Something must be going on. And so I've tried to share that piece to really, truly listen to the patient and hear what it is that they're trying to say. Maybe it is just a normal pregnancy symptom, but especially someone who's consistently saying that to you, just dig in a little bit more and recognize that not all of us have pressures that are catastrophic um, and really just knowing like who your patient is. The other part I would say would be that debriefing, if it can't, if there can't be communication during the event, we know they're very busy. They're focused on keeping you alive. And I'd also like to include in here that I am extremely grateful for the care that I received at the hospital. They treated me very aggressively and very swiftly. And without that, I would not be here today. So they took very good care of me to keep me and Henry alive. The communication piece would have been really helpful for me, especially in the aftermath as I was dealing with the trauma of what I had gone through and second guessing myself. Like, was that really that bad? Like, I don't know. No one talked to me about it. That would have been really helpful to to debrief with me and kind of talk about what I had gone through, maybe provide some resources. I had to do a lot of this digging on my own to try to figure out why did my body react that way? Does anyone else, did anyone else in the world go through something like this? And so that would have been really helpful. So I try to highlight those two things oftentimes when I share with hospital teams. That's great. That's really good. And I think you sort of touched on this, but another thing that is always good for providers is after, like after your first birth, talking to you as a patient about how you handle that trauma that you had. I mean, it wasn't, you just had preeclampsia and you had your baby fine quickly, but still there's, you had preeclampsia. I still think everybody, even after your first birth, could go through some type of therapy to kind of prepare you or even after a traumatic birth go through therapy. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so crazy in hindsight, because I like before Henry's birth, I would have told you like, no big deal. 
I thought it was no big deal because I thought everyone goes on bed rest. I just knew of so many women that had gone on it. And I just thought it's just a thing, like it's no big deal. And knowing what I now know that I should have been followed with an MFM, I should have had, I should have been taking probably aspirin or other drugs because I had had that, had preeclampsia before. So absolutely, I firmly believe that that should have happened and that, you know, there probably was some underlying trauma that I didn't, I I probably couldn't have even put into words. Yeah. Yeah. With my first, yeah. Well, now that you are doing your life's mission now of working and helping other moms and educating them and dads as well and sharing their story and being patient partners in hospitals, tell us about Mama's Voices. Yeah. So Mama's Voices is a coalition and it is a project of the Preeclampsia Foundation. And this started in 2018. And around this time was really when a lot of investigative reporting and things were coming out about maternal mortality. And so this was created as a coalition for patient advocacy organizations. So kind of thinking of it as like the umbrella of all maternal, of the whole maternal health space. So a place where patient advocacy organizations can kind of come to get tools and resources and and try to just understand better about the maternal health space. And we have grown throughout the last few years and have added a training program to Mama's Voices. So instead of it just kind of being a place where you come and find out what other organizations are, we really wanted to take it a step further. And so we offer a training program for those who have a lived experience or those who represent them, because sometimes we have dads that go through it. Sometimes we'll have providers that go through on behalf of their patients. If they, we've had a couple that just have gotten tired of what they've witnessed. And so they want to go through from that perspective. And so we have them go through this training, which I can talk about a little bit more in in a minute if you'd like me to, but Mama's Voices, the, the mission of what it was founded for was to amplify the voices of those who have experienced pregnancy and childbirth complications, equipping them with the tools that they need so that they can be a part of improving maternal health outcomes. And we put a strong emphasis on, especially those who've been historically marginalized, ensuring that they are able to have their voices integrated into all of this work. That's wonderful. Well, do tell us more about this training because TIPQC has it and has provided it to all of our hospitals and patient family partners. Yes. And I know you went through it as well. Yes. Yes. So this training, I think it's important for advocates who might be listening to this, patients who had a lived experience. Sometimes that word training come across a little intimidating or a little scary or super like time consuming. This is a training that's done at your own pace. When you can find the time, it's all done online. You can watch video modules while you're cooking dinner. I I used to joke that that's what I would do because that's just sometimes how life is as a busy mom. But there's these short little video modules to watch and short assignments for you to complete that really help you in your advocacy journey. So some of these examples are learning how to craft your story in a way so that when they're paired with an engagement, they're going to have a clear key message. So really helping to teach them I have all of these thoughts in my head. How do I articulate that so that when I go 
speak at a hospital that what I really want to say is able to come through. And that's my favorite part of my job is to help our advocates find their voice. They also, throughout this training, will learn how to make an advocacy CV so they can have that as they're building their professional presence in this space. We're working really hard to educate clinicians to see that patients with a lived experience are subject matter experts. They may not have a medical background, but they're experts of their experiences. And so one of the ways that we do this is by having, we want our patient family partners to have that CV where they can build that confidence in themselves as well. We have them submit a headshot. We also have them watch some video modules on pitching their story to the media, integrating and communicating on social media. So it's really just kind of like, a kickstart to all the things that you might need to know as you become being an advocate. And we've gotten a lot of really good feedback that people go through it. And you might have been involved in this space for 20 years and go through it and get something out of it. Just like somebody brand new is going to go through it and get something out of it. So it's been really well received. It's really a great training. And, and I'll say it prepares you so much to be involved in hospital work and a quality improvement project, it really prepares the family or patient partner. That's what I felt. So you do come in. So you, when you get on the team, you don't feel like you have no idea what people are talking about. So it's, it's a really great training. Right. Thank um, you. Oh, you're well, welcome. Let me, let me add to, and it, it's, we say like four to six hours is about how long it takes. And some people take longer than others, but somebody's listening and they want to get involved in it. It's, I would say about four to six hours by the time you start to finish. And like I said, it's done at your own pace when you can find the time. Yes. And the, one of the the big things that I think hospitals within TIPQC and probably all around don't really understand how they can use the expertise of a patient family partner on their QI team. So they struggle with that. So any suggestions that you might have for some of the hospital teams listening? Yeah, and it's such a great question. I think where we are today compared to five years ago is very different. I think there's definitely, probably mostly universally, an understanding that patients do belong in this. But now the question is like what you're saying is how? Like we know that they're important. We don't really know how to do it. And so the first thing I would say would be think about an area where you want to grow and just to start small. I think it can feel really overwhelming to think like, oh, I don't know. Do they have to sit on this committee? And what does that look like? And what if we can't pay them? So, and to me, that sounds like so many ideas, right? So start small. Something as simple as having a patient review, a patient satisfaction survey that you have within your hospital team is a good start. That's something really simple. Like you already have it created, just saying, hey, we want a patient or two to just look at this. Tell us, like, would you ask these questions differently? Would you help us as we look at our evaluation forms? Would you just help us look at it? Um, another idea would be having them look at a brochure that might be close to be like being printed in the hospital. They can give that impact and that feedback. And I know that might seem like really minuscule, but might be listening thinking, what? I didn't know patients could do that. But they really can bring such a valuable insight and can help identify some pieces that might be missing. So they could say something like, 
I wish the survey would ask this specific question, or have you thought about including this type of image on your brochure? So they're really able to be a part of some of those missing pieces that hospital teams are looking for. I'd also like to note that we work really hard with our PFPs, we call them patient family partners, to be solution focused. So we recognize that they come to us with terrible experiences, with heartbreaking experiences, sometimes experiences where they were racially profiled, things that are not okay. And we do not condone that. We don't think that hospitals should be allowed to do that. We work really hard at teaching our PFPs to be solution focused. And so really coming to the table with a tangible, something that could have gone different. And so I think that's important for hospital teams to know is that I think there may be a fear or concern that we're just going to get yelled at, right? But there is always room for improvement and we want our patients to come with a solution in mind to help them. So it's really a beautiful thing to witness. I know some PFPs in my head I can think of who came in just so heartbroken and rightfully so, and were able to go through this process and really heal. And now they're sitting on MMRCs and on really amazing, been given really amazing opportunities throughout their advocacy journey. So I would say start small, just start small and something that you can do and then see where it goes from there. Those are great suggestions. It's very true because it'll only grow. And you know, those PFPs, they want to be there. That's why that, I mean, they want to help. They do. They really Mm -hmm. do. Well, based on what we just said, I've got an interesting quote I wanted to share. The Institute of Healthcare Improvement stated, we have observed that in a growing number of instances where truly stunning levels of improvement have been achieved, organizations have asked patients and their families to be directly involved in the process. And those organizations' leaders often cite this change. Putting patients in a position of real power and influence using their wisdom and experience to redesign and improve care systems as being the single most powerful transformational change in their history. I love this. I love it. It's so true. It is so true. Patients are such a valuable piece of helping to identify where there can be improvements. Yes, it's amazing. And I think once, like you said, start small and you will see a huge change and it will only help your unit, your hospital. Well, thank you for all that you're doing for helping our hospitals to make this journey and integrating patient and family partners in the work that we do. You are so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Um, If anybody wants to learn more about Mama's Voices and what we do, um, you can go to our website. It's Mama's Voices, M-O-M-M-A-S, Voices. It's one word, dot .org. Um, and you can find our contact information on there. We have a lot of things that didn't even have the time to dig into today. Not only do we train our patients how to become the best advocates, we help to train hospital teams on how they integrate patients and kind of go through some of those questions that you brought up a minute ago. Like, where do we start? Kind of helping them see some ways that they can do that. So thank you again so much for having me. and. Thank you for the great work that y'all are doing. Well, we're looking forward to seeing you at the conference too. Yes, I can't wait to see y'all. Yes.
Well, thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee, presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.